I'm going to be preaching from uh, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if you want to turn there. Starting in verse 19. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of our Lord. Let's take a, a few moments here, church. Just take a moment right where you are and ask the Spirit of God to come and guide us now as we give attention to His word. Dear Lord, we ask that you now come and talk to us. Captivate us, dear Lord, as we give to you our undivided, undistracted attention. Please overcome any impediments or slowness or our preoccupations. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I get real with you this morning? Will you allow me, church? Yes. Yes. I, I'm going to venture into an area that haunts me. An area that in my own life, I need discipline from the Holy Spirit. An area that I need renewed commitment towards. An area, if we're honest this morning, we all need renewed vigor and encouragement. Will you allow me? A few weeks ago, I had lunch with Pastor Vaughn. I wanted to see how he and Diane were doing, and selfishly, I wanted to glean some wisdom. I asked him the question in an attempt to glean some wisdom. What does he see as the biggest issue or struggle on the horizon for the church? Part of me wasn't expecting his answer, and part of me had been considering his answer even before he gave it. On one hand, I wasn't expecting him to interpret my question to be applied directly to our church liberty. But his response was on my mind, even to the point of conviction, even before his answer, for some time now. 
actually, since I've been preparing the sermon back in April, if you remember last time I preached was Mother's Day. I said at that time that I changed my sermon because I felt I needed to fill in the details of what does the resurrection change for us before I move to the resurrection of Christ mobilizes our mission. That's the title for this morning. So what was Pastor Vaughn's answer to the question, what does he see as the biggest issue or struggle on the horizon for the church? His answer, the lack of growth or church growth through the means of evangelism. As I reflected on his answer, it haunted me. I could not, in my own mind, come up with many or any examples of disciples that were made as a result of our God-assigned mission in the work of evangelism. It haunts me. It should haunt every pastor or Christian ministry leader in a gospel-believing church. I expect it's one of the perennial anxieties of every gospel-loving pastor that an otherwise well-intentioned fellowship of committed Christ followers can unknowingly and almost imperceptibly evolve into a congregation that is inwardly turned rather than outwardly curved. So self-absorbed, for example, with doctrinal minutiae. So self-absorbed with the style of worship. So self-absorbed with advocating for a particular kind of family life. Or self-absorbed with the desire to function pristinely as a congregation that she eventually loses sight of her unique calling in the mission of God. To my mind, the cause of this self-absorption is immaterial. It's, it's the reality of it, whatever the cause, that is tragic. A missional irrelevance owing to a congregational narcissism. A missional irrelevance owing to a congregational narcissism. If I could phrase it another way, a congregational self-centeredness that leads to an insignificance in gospel mission. So what's the preventative? I would insist an intentional preoccupation with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead a revived and heightened obsession with the reality that Jesus Christ is alive and reigning as the universal Lord. It's what we can see this morning in the passage that we just went through that, that is now set before us, church. In fact, why don't we just cut right straight to it, right to the heart, right to this, the heart of this text. Take a look at the middle of verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Would you agree that 
if the resurrected Lord says something once, then it's worth noting. That it's worthy of our attention. The Great Commission, as it's been referred to, appears five times. Yep, five times in the New Testament. In Matthew's account, the, access, the accent of it is on the sovereignty of the one who assigns it. And he says it to us. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark's emphasis highlights the consequences of the responses to it. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Luke's gospel, it stresses the Old Testament fulfillment of the Great Commission. Thus it is written, Jesus says, it, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remittance of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. In the account of Acts, it focuses on the Great Commission strategy. Acts chapter 1. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Four accounts of the Great Commission on each occasion spoken by the resurrected Lord himself. Is Jesus being repetitive? Absolutely. So that no allowance is made for an alternative mission. Is Jesus being redundant? No, hardly, because each of these versions of the Great Commission underscores a unique and important emphasis of it. And then here today in our text, here in John, is the fifth account of the Great Commission. And its unique emphasis, it's, it's something of massive significance for us. John calls our attention to the missional continuity of the Great Commission. The missional continuity of the Great Commission. Look at it again, middle of verse 21. As the Father has sent me... All through the Gospel of John, on multiple occasions, Jesus refers to himself as the one sent from the Father. The one sent from the Father. He is the ultimate sent one. But you'll notice, as he begins the sentence with the comparative junction, conjunction, as or just as, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now let me show you something that's very important. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, he doesn't use the, tr the traditional past tense. Why do I bother you with that? So that you won't be tempted to think that Jesus is speaking of something in the past that is now finished. The Father sent me, I have accomplished my part, now in turn I send you. No. Jesus uses a different kind of verb tense, 
that one that does indicate past action, but simultaneously stresses consequences that are ongoing. In other words, what Jesus is implying is this, the Father sent me and I still exist in the state of sentness. That is to say, I am still carrying on my mission. It reminds me of the opening words in the book of Acts. Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. It's a reference to volume one, the Gospel of Luke. That is, all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up to heaven. Volume two, the book of Acts, all that Jesus continues to do since he's been taken up to heaven. It's, a, it's really unfortunate that Luke's second volume has often been referred to as the Acts of the Apostle or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Those labels miss the point of Luke's opening. Luke's prequel, his prequel is the account of the earthly activity of an earthly Jesus. His sequel, Acts, is the account of a, the earthly activity of a heavenly Jesus. So you say... How can Jesus continue to be meaningfully carrying out the mission of God if he's in heaven? His answers to his disciples is simple. My ministry continues through you. Your mission is not to function as innovators who happen to have a religious bent to their creativity. It's to function as faithful executors of the mission that I've, Jesus, already begun. Your aim is not to start a new ministry built on your own powers of entrepreneurialism that will draw people's attention to your name. Your mission is to continue mine, ministering in my name, making known my gospel, advancing my kingdom in the great continuity of ministry that has been authored in the heart of the great missionary God himself. And what I'm trying to tell you, church, this morning is this. Recognizing this tight continuity of ministry is what can keep us from skewing ourselves into irrelevance. To my mind, it is this that lends such dignity to our mission as the church. That it's not constructed upon our names. That it's, that, it's reflect, that it's not reflected of our creativities or our methodologies, but rather it is a plain display of an intentional continuity with the mission of Jesus, which is nothing less than the mission of God, which is the eternal salvation of the human race through the means of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You say, well then, what role am I to play in the outworking of this mission? And that's a very good question. Many years ago, 
A famous violinist died, leaving behind a Stradivarius violin with no remaining family member to whom he could leave it. Subsequently, the violin was sold at an auction to the highest bidder for $200,000, an astronomical amount at that time. Today, Stradivarius violins, there's only a few in the whole world, they're selling for about $20 million apiece. The buyer in his own right was a highly skilled violinist. He announced that he would be performing a recital on the historic violin. The date was set, the hall was secured, and, and when the evening finally arrived, the auditorium was filled to capacity. Once everybody had taken their seat, the room was hushed. The maestro stepped onto the stage, bowed, and began to play a piece by Paganini. The audience was immediately arrested by his virtuosity, spellbound by the sheer beauty of the tonalities. When he was finished, the audience leapt to his feet in thunderous applause. In response, the violinist nodded, then grabbed the violin by its neck, raised it over his head, and smashed it onto a table in a hundred pieces. Then he walked off the stage. Audible gasps could be heard heard throughout the audience. Finally, a second gentleman walked onto the stage and motioned for the people to become quiet. Once they did, he addressed them as follows. The violin that had just been destroyed on which the maestro played Paganini was a $20 violin. He will now finish the remainder of his recital on the $200,000 Stradivarius. His point? was inescapable. It's never the violin. It's always the violinist. And that's what you and I are in this mission of God. We're a $20 violin. A yielded instrument upon whom Jesus Christ displays his compelling genius. We carry out his mission and we are to do so in such a way that there is an obvious continuity between what he did and what we are doing. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And now, church, to adequately mobilize you for this mission, the resurrected Lord himself furnishes you with an evangelical endowment an endowment that consists of three parts. They are what I call my three Ps, having been brought up Baptist, that's how I do things. Three Ps, three parts. It is, as it were, the resurrection mobilization, or how the resurrection mobilizes our mission. Part one, the first P, the resurrected Christ endows you with peace. The resurrected Christ endows you with peace. Notice verse 19. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, 
It is still, friends, the very first Resurrection Sunday, the most significant day in the entirety of human history. Peter and John have just run to the garden tomb. They see that it's empty. Then they hear the testimony of Mary Magdalene. I have seen the Lord. You'd expect them right now to be dancing in the streets. Death is dead, love is one. He has conquered. Who can stop us now? But is this what we see? Continuing, verse 19. When the doors were shut, if you have an ESV or if you look at the NIV, it might render it locked. And that's actually probably more important or more uh, correct, I should say, because the word for, that is rendered in my version, the New King James, shut, is really shut securely. So it's probably better for our ears to hear locked because that's really what was happening here. And, and we'll see that in a moment. When the doors were shut or locked, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... So these guys are huddled together like a group of grade school girls who've been swapping ghost stories at a slumber party. They're jumping out of their skin every time they hear the, the, the slightest creak. What was that? Did you hear something? They had narrowly escaped when the Romans arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Romans crucified Jesus. It's not a huge leap to assume that having killed off the leader, that the Romans well will now begin to pick off the rest one by one if necessary. So with every sound of approaching footstep, their whispers go silent. With every knock at the door, their hearts begin to pound like a bass drum. These are the future leaders of the church. Hiding in dread, contemplating a way to get out of Dodge without being caught. It's the reason why John here adds that the doors are locked or secured. It's to highlight their fear. But the function of the locked doors? Oh, it's to spotlight the miraculous nature of what's about to happen. We continue on. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were ascended for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. Now, friends, it's been a very busy day for Jesus. We know of at least four occasions on that single day that he appeared to his followers, and not, by the way, because they went looking for him, or at least a risen Savior. It's, it's because Jesus loves to be where his people are. In, the case, in this case, the very people who had not lived up to their professed allegiance to him. And that all by itself, church, ought to tell us something that while Jesus may be an uninvited guest, he was never an unwilling guest who has no desire to be where he doesn't want to be or, or who somehow can be, has to be coerced to be where he doesn't want to be. He seeks them. He seeks them. If you belong to Jesus, he wants to be where you are even if you failed him. You say, well, what about the deadbolt? 
to secure or lock the door. Well, earlier this day, the resurrection body of Jesus arises out of its graves, arises out of his grave clothes so that they're left perfectly in place. And here now, quite apart from the more socially acceptable mode of entry into the room through the door, Jesus materializes in their midst. You say, well, it sounds like he's a ghost. I mean, this can't be a material body. But notice what John says here in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. In fact, if you look at Luke, Luke says in the, uh, the comparative spot here, Luke says, Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that, is, that it is I myself handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. How in the world can I explain this? I, I can't in this world explain it. I wouldn't even try. I said to you in my last sermon that I preached on Mother's Day that I've never before seen a glorified body, nor have I, the disciples seen a glorified body before this, which is why, why you must now appreciate what Jesus says to them twice. Peace be with you. And again in verse 21, Peace be with you. Oh, you see, my friends, he's not merely saying, hey, hey, chill out, guys. Everything's okay. This is something that is more infinitely significant. It is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to these men on the prior Thursday evening before going to the cross. In John 14, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But it's not the kind of peace that our culture so often hopes for, crossing their fingers and hoping for the best, the rare convergence of favorable circumstances. No. This here is an, an internal wellness of being that is the result of existing in a favorable relationship with one's creator. This is the kind of peace the Bible talks about. This is the kind of peace that Jesus gives, the peace that consumed and governed his own life. Do you have this kind of peace? Or are you exhausting yourself to death by rabidly chasing after this kind of peace by means of success in your career? By means of the perfect relationship? By means of economic security? By means of perfectly obedient children? As a human being, you have been designed in such a way that you can only find real peace when you are rightly oriented to the God who made you. When the barricade that separates you from God is taken away so that you can enjoy a full and reconciled relationship with Him. 
Who makes this peace possible? Jesus Christ does. You say, what authenticates the means of securing that peace with God? The wounds that still mar his resurrection body, his pierced hand inside. That they are the credentials that qualify him as the one who secures this kind of peace. They show you, friends, that by his death, that he secures this peace for you. Not religion, not morality, not success or sacrifice or suffering, not in a pill or in a bottle or in a bed. It's only found in the person who has purchased it for you with the wounds that serve as receipts of his purchase. If you want real peace, you need to place yourself entirely into the scarred hands of the one who is the Prince of Peace, the risen Lord, who is none other than the crucified sacrifice. Peace be with you. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. Then the disciples were glad, some of your versions might say overjoyed, when they saw the Lord. This is too a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to them just hours before the crucifixion. He said to them, John chapter 16, most assuredly or truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Again, Jesus said, peace to you. It is, don't you see, the consequence of the resurrection. Jesus Christ endows his people with peace. You say, well, David, what in the world does this have to do anyway with mobilizing me for mission? Well, it's really quite simple. You can take every evangelism class that there is to take. You can master every evangelistic technique that has ever been invented. You can memorize every verse that's been taught in every evangelistic seminar. And you can assemble an arsenal of sound, rational arguments for every possible rebuttal that has been directed to you. But... Can you ever hope to be effective in calling people to peace with God if you yourself have not experienced it? Can you in any convincing way warmly invite people into a reconciled relationship with God if you have no familiarity with what it means to have direct access to Him? Can you really offer the gospel of forgiveness freely and winsomely without any firsthand knowledge of what it means to have your own guilt atoned for and your own conscience freed? 
Can you genuinely call people to eternal life if you yourself live in fear of death and the judgment that follows? My dear friends, before you can ever engage in this mission of God, you yourself must be a recipient of the endowment of peace. You yourself must experience the peace of God that is the result of peace with God that only comes to a person as the gift of the resurrected Christ. Oh, a peace, you see, that can overcome the fear of expected embarrassment. A peace that can supply courage in the face of hostile antagonism. A peace that can lend an experiential credibility to the gospel we present. The resurrection of Jesus Christ mobilizes our mission. How? It furnishes you as his follower with an evangelical endowment. And the first part, the first P, he, the resurrected Christ, endows you with peace. The second P, the resurrected Christ endows you with power. So we had peace, now we have power. The resurrected Christ endows you with power. Notice verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the purpose of receiving the Holy Spirit? I mean, people take this verse and strip it out of its context, and man, they come to all kinds of wild and crazy conclusions. Is this here for the purpose of providing the disciples with a new and exciting spiritual experience? Is it here for the purpose for inaugurating them into the holier-than-thou club? No. Rather than reading an agenda into this, let the text do its work. Verse 22 begins with the conjunction and, which tells you that verse 22 is an extension of verse 21. What's more, it's connected to verse 23. So please don't ever detach verse 22 from its context. So very simply, church, the Holy Spirit is being given to the followers of Jesus Christ so that they can now do in the whole world what Jesus has been doing in Israel. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. In other words, salvation comes from Israel but never with the intention of confining salvation to Israel, always with the intention that salvation would be brought to the entire world. But how can these disciples do it given the fact that they're locked in a room afraid to go outside? Do you recall that on the night before Jesus' death, Jesus gets up from the table he removes his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist, and redefines greatness 
by washing his disciples' feet. In doing so, church, Jesus doesn't institute a third sacrament in addition to baptism in the Lord's Supper. He's, he's acting out a parable, communicating in a symbolic way the cleansing that his death would soon accomplish. And when he's there to wash Peter's feet, what happens? Peter pulls away. He says, no, not a chance you're going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, I, ha I have nothing to do with you. You have nothing to do with me. That picture is pointing to something infinitely beyond itself, the cleansing that his death was about to achieve. And right here, my friends, it's much like that. This is an acted-out parable, communicating in a symbolic way the gift that he would soon grant to them, the indwelling Holy Spirit, who would empower them for mission. But as he made plain on prior occasions, this would only occur after he has ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit will come after Jesus has been glorified, after Jesus has ascended. Has Jesus as yet ascended to the Father? No. If you remember the Mother's Day sermon in verse 17, you could see it there yourself. Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, do not hold on to me, or do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. When does the ascension occur? Acts chapter 1. Then what happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit descends upon them. To what end? The mission of God explodes. The Holy Spirit suddenly helps Peter to understand how the Old Testament points to the Gospel. It empowers Peter to proclaim the Gospel. It transforms the hearers of the Gospel. And people come to acknowledge publicly by way of baptism that Jesus Christ, by virtue of His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, is their King. And I want to tell you something, church. This is something that you and I need to be reminded of over and over and over and over and over again. Why? So we never lose sight of the fact that the success of God's mission is not ultimately dependent upon your creative genius, your airtight arguments, your hip presentations. It has everything to do with the empowerment of the Spirit of God. And when this finally grips us, church, suddenly, St. Charles, Missouri isn't so intimidating. St. Louis isn't a no-fly-by zone. Postmodernism, that evil worldview, and its terrifying threat isn't so unnerving anymore. So why do we speak the gospel to people as if we have something for which to apologize? As if our only hope for success is to stumble upon a person who just happens to possess a receptive and gracious disposition. Your message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Moreover, you were indwelled by the omnipotent Spirit of the living God who can easily overcome the most obstinance of hearts. 
and the most defiant unbelievers. He can create life where there's none. And, And don't you see it? It's the reason for this acted out parable here. It's why Jesus breathes on the disciples. It should remind us of something. This language, you should hear it, the echo of something earlier in the Bible. Remember, God forms a man out of the dust of the ground, and then what? He breathed into his nostrils his own breath, the very breath of life. Humanity lives. It's what Jesus is replaying here. The author of the original creation once again breathing out life in recreation and in so doing making people live. People who in turn must now offer this life to the lifeless people of this fallen world. It is the beginning of new creation. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you guys know it, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mobilize our mission? By granting you an evangelical endowment to accomplish the very tasks that he gives you. The resurrection of Christ endows you with peace. The resurrection of Christ endows you with power. And the third part of this, the last P, the resurrection of Christ endows you with prerogative. The resurrection, the resurrected Christ endows you with prerogative. Want to know something really cool? Maybe you've noticed it. That the entire Trinity is engaged in this process, in this mission. The Father sends the Son, right? And the Son sends you, but not before empowering you with the Holy Spirit. My friends, you have a strategic role to play in the mission of the Trinitarian God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So by design, right? By design, you step out, you leave this place, you step out onto Main Street, O'Fallon, Main Street, St. Charles, or an abortion mill, maybe a library, or other country. You leave this place and you step into the world. You don't lock yourself away with Christians on Monday through Saturday only to get together again with Christians again on Sunday. You step into the world, the world that you love, and I know you love it, and the world you pray for, and I know you pray for it. Engaging this world with the message of the Gospel. And then, as the Holy Spirit so often is sovereign, sovereignly pleased to do, men and women and children come to recognize their guilt that they deserve judgment. Consequently, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes the most wonderful news that they've ever heard. 
So they turn from their sin and they rest themselves entirely on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They receive Him. They believe Him. Then they turn to you and say, so, am I saved? They look you straight in the eyes. Have my sins been forgiven? Do I now have eternal life? I don't necessarily feel any difference. Have I been delivered from my sins? How do you respond? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I hope so. If you're among the elect, but of course, we'll all know when you die, right? No. That is not what Jesus sends us out to do. You have the prerogative of saying to people, your sins are forgiven, or your sins are not forgiven. But listen carefully. This prerogative is not a determinative prerogative. It is a declarative prerogative. In other words, the declaration of forgiven or unforgiven is not ours to make apart from the responses of people to the gospel. Rather that on the basis of their response to the gospel, we can authoritatively declare what heaven has already determined. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It may be translated more literally as, if you forgive the sins of any, they have already been forgiven by God. If you do not forgive them, they have not been forgiven by God. The context of Jesus' teaching is the commissioning of the disciples and the universal church to evangelize the world. It is the mobilization of our mission. Since this is an authoritative declaration, it is the response of the gospel that is given. It is the greater work which we shall do. If you guys know, John 14 talks about that greater work. It says, truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. When someone turns and believes Jesus while he was physically here on earth, that was wonderful, right? But what is absolutely staggering is when you or I simply share the gospel of Jesus Christ, having been endowed by, endowed by the Spirit of God with peace, power, and prerogative, and someone as a result is born again and becomes a new creature in Jesus Christ, that is amazing. The keys to the kingdom of God has been given to us. Are you forgiven? My friends, it is the status before God that depends exclusively on your relationship to the resurrected of Christ. To refuse Him, to reject His savings accomplishment, leaves me no alternative but to declare that you presently stand before God in the state of unforgiveness. 
It is, however, the greatest joy in a Christian's life to declare that you can stand before God entirely forgiven. If you would seek this forgiveness in the Savior who has died for you and who now lives for you, there is no sin that stains you beyond the reach of His forgiveness. Listen to it again. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. On a dangerous seacoast, where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude, life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought of themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. This wonderful little station saved many lives, and over time it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area sought to become associated with the station, to give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new crews trained, the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cot with beds, and, better, and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Gradually, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. Over time, they decorated it exquisitely, using, using it as a sort of club. Fewer members, however, were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they, they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a little liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some of them had white skin, some of them had black skin, some of them had yellow skin, some of them had brown skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life 
the club's life-saving activities altogether, having come to regard them as unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some of the members insisted upon having life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It too evolved into a club. Well, yet another life-saving station was founded. History has continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks still frequent those waters, but most of the people drown. Does it haunt you? It haunts me. A missional irrelevance owing to a congregational narcissism. I can't help to ask you, is Liberty Church a life-saving station? It is an intentional preoccupation with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will keep us from missional irrelevance. It is the resurrection, in fact, that mobilizes mission, furnishing you, church, with an evangelical endowment to achieve it, endowing you with peace, with power, and prerogative. It is the resurrection mobilization for the mission of God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Father and our God, none of us here intend to abandon the gospel. But we never, we must never be allowed to assume it lest we lose it. It must always and evermore be our preoccupation. And tied to the gospel, your mission, we remember that Jesus came to seek and save the lost that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was and still is his mission as he empowers us for it today. And so, Father, may it never be that someone can look at Liberty Church and say we've become a club with a life-saving motif. But rather they would say, there is a simple, humble, life-saving station. Even if they can never say anything else about us, please let it be that Liberty Church makes known your gospel to this world. That we're not a club, a recre recreational association. We are a people living our lives on mission. And we come here on Sundays, we come here to worship and pray and to hear from you, to be re revived and renewed and refreshed by you so that we can immediately go back out and engage this world with this mission.
your mission, the mission of God. And Father, we do so with expectancy. You have given us peace. You have given us power. And you have given us prerogative. Lord, I pray that we will endeavor to use what you endowed to us and we would get busy on the task of your mission. Lord, you command it. And we want to obey. We love you. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.